Dr. Greg Novakowski is with me again. He looks fresh after a vacation, uh, I believe he took, and he is coming on the Hemang Pulse. Greg, you did not mess up last time on the Hemang Pulse, so we brought you back. Well, thank you. That's a huge encouragement. Looking it's forward a... to the discussion today. You have an opportunity to mess things up in a little bit. But uh, uh, I actually, you know, the, the last conversation we had on the Hemang Pulse, we talked in general about DLBCL. And I learned from you two things are really important. You served on the ODAC committee that looked at the Polarix trial. And I really wanted to bring you back with focus on the Polarix trial and what how does the ODAC process go when it comes to something like this? And then how was your experience and how did you reach a conclusion of Polaris? So um, the focus is really Polaris and ODAC um, in terms of the trial. So let's maybe start by level setting, maybe an intro about you a little bit, and then let's delve into what is the Polaris trial. Well, thank you, Charlie. So um, as, a, as an intro, I, I'm at Mayo Clinic Rochester, I'm a lymphoma. Uh, physician here and actually currently chair our employed malignancy uh, malignancy group and have a long-standing career in uh, clinical trials in uh, diffusor B-cell lymphoma, particularly in particular in frontline therapy. So uh, Polarix trial is really very close to my heart. Uh, that's what I do um, every day. Now, I also had the privilege of serving on ODAC and it's a public information now that uh, records are public. Uh, Polarix trials, one of those trials which actually came to the discussion uh, to ODAC, and that's primarily due to a relatively small benefit in progression-free survival and no difference in overall survival. So there was a big discussion how we should be looking at the frontline studies altogether in a large cell lymphoma and specifically at Polarix trial. This actually links also to recent workshop which we had between ACR and FDA, just looking at overall survival and importance of overall survival in, in studies, in, in cancer uh, studies. Um, so it was a very, very nice discussion. And um, you know, maybe I can just start from briefly reminding people how the product study was designed. Yeah, that was how. Uh, so the study was essentially looking for patients with newly diagnosed diffuse B cell lymphoma, focusing at a little bit of higher risk patients with IPI between two and five. So IPI2, which is uh, intermediate risk category, was also included in the study. Fairly large study, over 800 uh, patients were accrued. And it was really comparing two therapies. One was the ARCHOP standard, which we have now for 20 years, uh, which improved over CHOP before. So, and it had been very difficult to beat in multiple clinical studies. That's why the study is so hot that, you know, we had many clinical studies before trying to improve on ARCHOP. And this is the first one, which showed some dent in ARCHOP in terms of the progression through survival. So it was comparing this standard of, of ARCHOP therapy versus adding polatuzumab vedotin, which is antibody drug conjugate targeting CD79B uh, with RCHP. Uh, so in th this backbone of chemotherapy, uh, vincristin was omitted uh, because it could cause uh, cumulative toxicity of neuropathy with vedotin, which is also a mitotic uh, spindle toxin. So POLA-B plus RCHP or RCHIP as we call it versus uh, RCHOP. Now, interestingly, in a study design, uh, there were additional cycles of rituxan given on uh, cycle seven and eight, which was rituxan only, and this was given in two arms. There are some countries in the world uh, which believe that eight infusions of rituxan is really important, and this was a global study. So to accommodate those, uh, those views, um, uh, the study actually allowed to do that, 
although we typically don't do it uh, in US. The primary endpoint of the study, as you typically would see in a in a, uh, studies like this was a time-dependent endpoint, so progression-free survival, and then uh, the number of secondary endpoints, which you typically see in studies, including overall survival, disease-free survival, and so forth. Um, and and it's, it's interesting, the decision on the primary endpoint. I know we're going to get into it because that came up at the ODAC, but uh, it's pretty typical nowadays for DLBCL trials to have progression-free survival or disease-free survival as primary endpoint. So you touch on something very important. So it's typically for all those studies, we see progression for survival. And, you know, we could have a whole different podcast of, is it really the best endpoint? And everybody has some feelings about it. I actually believe it's not the best endpoint in the frontline studies. I do believe that actually event-free survival, so initiation of treatment for the patients who do not progress would be better, reflecting real clinical benefit. The reason for that is that if you treat somebody in a frontline setting, if they don't achieve complete remission, and this is a curable rem uh, lymphoma, even you're not going to wait until progression. You're going to basically treat them with subsequent therapy. And uh, waiting for the progression for survival in those studies really is truly missing those events um, early on, uh, which are the treatment initiated because of failure of induction and having residual disease without necessarily progression. So. I think event-free survival actually would be probably a better endpoint. Now, traditionally, for many reasons, and there are some good arguments for progression-free survival, including you know the commentation of the true progression and making sure that they were you know truly associated with the disease control. Uh, progression-free survival has been a standard endpoint, if you would, in those frontline studies. In uh, uh, majority, if not all, uh, frontline studies in diffuse cell lymphoma. Great. So that trial, 800 patients, these are the two arms, primary endpoint. What did it show? Well, it showed advantage to uh, polar R-chip arm and in terms of progression-free survival. And you know, if you look at this, advantage was not huge. So it was at two years, PFS was 76.7 versus 70.2%. Uh, so 6.5% benefit at two years. Now, you can always look at things with glasses half full or half empty. Uh -huh. uh, you know, if, if you think of that top absolute benefit, you know, 6.5% at the cost of the new drug, which can add some toxicity and definitely is adding the cost, it doesn't sound a lot. On the flip side, you know, if you look at the relative risk reduction, because a lot of patients will be cured, this result is in about 27% of uh, pay, uh, risk reduction, progression, or death. And that's 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 a meaningful meaningful gain uh, uh, if you look at the relative uh, risk reduction. Now, what was what was uh, also seen in the study that unfortunately this gain uh, in a progression-free survival did not correspond to gain in overall survival. So actually, overall survival was identical in in both arms of the study. There was really no difference, not even a trend, um, and towards the experimental arm. And this actually what precipitated this other discussion, you know, how important is this relatively small gain in PFS in a context of no gain in overall survival? And also brought some concerns um, uh, regarding the potential toxicity added uh, to the patient treatment when there was really no uh, difference in overall survival. Uh, Greg, quick question. Um, um, so, I mean, the when you looked at the curves, there was no trend. So it is your belief that even with longer follow-up, it's unlikely to see an overall survival benefit. Jenny, this is an excellent question because 
it, you know, we FDA still sees and and a lot of us sees PFS gain as a surrogate arc, uh, uh, surrogate for overall survival. And there are two things which are changing. Number one, the landscape of the fusel lymphoma is changing very quickly. So now you have much more effective salvage therapies, including CAR T cells and by specific antibodies and others, uh, which may actually result that this difference in overall survival could be much more difficult to show because you have more active salvage regimen. But this study had something different, which was very interesting about this. So if you look at the separation of progression-free survival curves, it doesn't really happen until approximately six months. Um, and the response rate is actually the same in both arms, which tells me that the impact of this experimental uh, treatment of platizumab vedotin on the primary refractory disease and those patients who progress very early uh, was actually minimal. Uh, it really happened later on for the patients who were lapsing later. And we all we all, we know from many studies now, including our own data and, and from many groups around the world, that the patients who relapse very early, the ones with primary refractory disease, are the ones which are the highest risk of death. The later relapse, particularly after you know six or twelve months, they actually do quite well. In fact, you know, approval of the CAR T cells right now is actually for the patients who relapse within a twelve months recognizing that that's the group which has this highest need. Yeah. Uh, and the patients who actually have below 12 months, they do quite well even with the standard chemotherapy. So because the separation of PFS curves occurs and EFS curves occurred so late, I don't think even with additional maturation, the study is likely to show overall survival. Now, we might be surprised. Uh, and, you know, with bretoximabedotin uh, in the frontline uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma of maturation, we actually did see a separation yeah. of overall survival curves. Uh, but but because of the sh shape of this curve um, and the late separation, I don't think it's likely to happen in this study. Unlikely. So this went to ODAC, and I want to spend some time there because I think, you know, a lot of listeners don't probably know much about ODAC and what goes there. How are members of the ODAC selected are there uh is there does every approval have to go in front of an odac um this was a lymphoma trial are all of you guys who served were lymphoma specialists do they bring somebody like how what do you know much about the process of how the selection take place you just get an email hey we'd like you to serve and that's it or well, you come all right. So getting the email, hey, we'd like you to serve. And you can serve two ways. So you can be a, a voting member of ODAC. And I used to serve in this capacity. And later on, after your term is done, and the term is typically about three to four years, you can still serve as an ad hoc reviewer uh, when, when they have a need for specifically for your type of expertise. So the constituency of the ODAC is actually quite interesting. So you have experts in the field, which are typically a medical oncologist or hematologist. And um, um, uh, they don't necessarily have lymphoma expertise, so they have a broader expertise, but they have deep expertise in understanding clinical trials and and uh, and approval process um, and looking at the safety data as well. Uh, they are vetted for conflict of interest, and they all have a status of special government employee uh, uh, to, to participate in this process. Then uh, you you have those ad hoc reviewers. So if uh, the committee is missing particular expertise or they would like to have more folks who are interested, let's say lymphoma, like in this case, they invite uh, folks with the interest in lymphoma to join the committee ad hoc as well. Now, there's also a, a patient representative and it's that's that's a patient voice. 
um, at the table. And uh, there's also industry representative as well to represent industry at large, which is a very important concept that, you know, industry has a voice in this process as well. The, the hearing itself is a little bit like a court hearing. So there's an ODAC kind of in the middle. And nowadays in this on a Zoom meeting mainly, but it mm -hmm. used to happen in the in physically in the space where basically it was really organized a little bit like a court. So on one side, you have a sponsor presenting their argument why the drug should be approved. Um, then FDA presenting their vision, their version, and maybe can bring some concerns why they worry about the approval or the, what are the potential concerns. And at the end, uh, you know, the other committee are the, the, the voting members will have to vote. And typically the question is, you know, is the risk to benefit profile favorable for this drug or not? And uh, should it be considered for, for approval? Now, it is important to remember that ODAC is just an advisory body, body to FDA, so it's not bounding. And there are some precedents that ODAC may have a different opinion than the final decision made by the FDA based on some additional data or some other information which wasn't necessarily discussed at, uh, at the ODAC. So it's really advisory body uh, uh, to, to FDA. So you're, and, the, you're uh, the jury. You're, you're the jury. Both sides are providing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Now, I, if if some of the listeners never seen this, uh, no, th those recordings are publicly available. And uh, if you're a clinical trialist, and and if you, if you drive joy like myself in trying to understand the nuances of trials designs and potential pitfalls and how the data should be collected, those are actually extremely fun to watch. So uh, for the people who are boring like myself, you know, uh, we sometimes find those unusual niches, I actually enjoy it. <laughs> but but is it like taped? We can find it on YouTube or something? Yeah, you, you can actually find it online. So FDA has a website which they actually, uh, the, the webcast has been recorded. Oh, for, interesting. For public well, I'm gonna... because they're, they're conducted in public and there is a public hearing part of it too. So any member of the public has an opportunity uh, ahead of all that actually block some time and express their opinion about the drug as well. So it's a very public, very transparent process and a really a huge kudos to FDA for, for, do, for making it this way. Okay, so is there a set time? Like is it one day, two days? Like sometimes courts go on for like two weeks or three weeks? Or well, it's typically, like... typically half a day. And, you know, typically half a day is really a reasonable time to, to, to provide enough time for the sponsor arguments and the um, FDA to present their concerns and then have a good discussion. There are those very pointy questions which can sometimes be directed to, to a DA or, or a sponsor about their interpretation of the, of the data. Um, and you know, to your initial point also, it doesn't really happen with all the approvals. So not every drug and not every approval goes through the ODAC. Uh, the FDA really has a discretion when they call our help. And they usually call for our help when they have some issues which are more controversial as it happened with Polarex. Yeah. Well, that's that's an excellent set. Um, so now you got into uh, the ODAC, into the hearing, and you're listening to to both sides. Obviously, you know the trial, you know the results. I guess, did you learn anything new, whether it is from the sponsor uh, or from the uh, FDA that you just were not aware of based on the paper, based on the presentations, like new information that said, oh, well, that's good to know. I'm, I'm going to factor that into my decision. Yeah, so, so absolutely right. So it's always like a little bit uncovering new information which in, in your questioning, which, which may not uh, be obvious from the paper. For example, you know, reading the paper, I was under the impression that the central pathology review or some central review was performed. That's what typically done in most of the modern studies. But when I questioned the sponsor, 
it actually turned out that there was no central pathology review in the study. So it was really by local diagnosis. Now, we know that in diffuse RP cell lymphoma, specifically, there is a high discordance rate between the pathologists in terms of the review, particularly with the local centers, which don't necessarily see high volume of lymphoma. There could be some overlap with marginal cell lymphoma or overlap with high-grade lymphoma. Uh, the other thing what was interesting during the discussion, so FDA performs their own analysis. So FDA has an access to primary data and they spend a lot of time doing their own analysis and subset analysis, which were not conducted in the initial study. In this case, FDA showed very informative analysis of patients who are DLBCL NOS. So mm -hmm. just if you start B-cell lymphoma and then high-grade lymphoma. And what was seen in the subset analysis that the benefit of the combination appeared to be predominantly seen in this high-grade lymphoma, not so much in DLBCL NOS. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there was really no difference in overall survival in this. There was some progression-free survival uh, difference, but there was a concern how those histological subtypes can affect the, 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 the interpretation of the results of the study, which made actually some of the uh, members of the ODACA vote against the approval at the end. Yeah, but, you know, in defense, though, Greg, and, you know, I mean, in defense, the reality is the trial was incepted, I forgot when, but, you know, several years back, and the lymphoma classification continues to evolve every few years. So it's very difficult. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? Um, it's it's always easy to say, well, now in 2022, we have the classification and you did not really look at all of the histologic subtypes. But in 2016, that's although the differences were not really that much between yeah. 016 and 22. Yeah, you're right. And, and nobody would keep the sponsor accountable to, to using the current classification when the study was designed. But, you know, you should. You, you still should probably review it right, based on right, classification right, use and time. Right. Oh, but my argument was different. I actually did not have a problem with lack of central pathology review, and I voiced it during the ODAC because I felt myself that, you know, at the end of the day, when this regimen goes to the clinic, right, and when we use it in the clinic, nobody's going to be doing central pathology. No. <laughs> <laughs> so so I felt that, you know, this is kind of fitting the real world situation. Nobody's going to be sending pathologies to, 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 to the uh, uh, central lab in the real clinical practice. And and I actually, actually I did not see it as a major no, uh, that, deficiency. That's a good point. And I think it's a pragmatic point. Okay. So you listened. How did you decide to reach a conclusion what was your vote how did you make up your mind whether you approve or not approve uh and 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 what did your colleagues do and what was the final vote well this was a hard decision actually because the you know this this lack of trend even in, in overall survival and relatively small benefit in progression free survival uh, was definitely something which required some discussion. Uh, we have to acknowledge that there's some additional cost to this regimen, not only financial, but there's more neuropathy and more risk of neutropenia with escalation of the therapy. Um, and although you know the, 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 the severe toxicity events were no different, nevertheless, it's always concerning, particularly if this goes into the real world, uh, which can actually you know, result in more harm uh, than, than in the study, just because of the patient selection. Sicker patients will be getting it in the real world. Uh, than, than on the study. There's no question about it. Um, I think for me, the most convincing argument was when we questioned about use of subsequent therapies, because in diffuse RB cell lymphoma, which is a curable disease, if you do have the relapse, you do require fairly intensive therapy as an next line. It's either stem cell transplant or CAR T cell therapies now in the second line. So sparing patients this intensive therapy and reducing the relative risk of, 
uh, prolapse or death by 27% uh, was meaningful to me in a frontline regimen. And again, with this changing field, uh, a rapidly changing field, I think this difference in overall survival is going to be hard to show in any other study. I also mentioned that for me, event-free survival is very important in those studies, and event-free survival benefit was kind of consistent in this study as well. Uh, so there was some separation on those curves. Again, not huge gain, just like with, just with, with PFS. So I voted yes, and num- and majority of the of the members voted yes. There were a few folks who voted against. Primarily, they were concerned about this pathology review and the little and no and the small magnitude of of the of the benefit. I must say, so this is all public knowledge now because you you know you, you get quoted at the end. It's actually what you say and justify your vote is with it's 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 in a, in a formal minutes and it's also available online and even quoted in a cancer letter if you would. And um, and 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 what I said here is that yes, I voted yes, but I would consider platuzuma vedotin a new option, but not a new standard. So Artrock has been a standard for many, many years. Platuzumab Vidotin plus R-chip does provide this new option of maybe improving progression-free survival. Um, and and for that reason, you know, it's reasonable to use it in a clinic in patients who meet the criteria for the study. However, it's not a new standard because it didn't really change the overall survival. So if you still have a studies which are using R-chip as a backbone, adding new agents, or even as a controller, if you randomize patients to R-chop versus new R-chop plus a new agent, those studies are completely fine to do. I would not hesitate to treat patients with R-chop even today or randomize patients to the studies, which uh, enroll patients to the studies, which randomize uh, to the co- uh, experimental arm versus R-chop because R-chop is, is still a standard and polar R-chip is just adding uh, additional option. The other interesting... Yeah, go, I was, was going to say, I mean, but it is important because now you've got R-CHOP, you've got the Polar R-CHIP, you've got EPOC-R, those are just the EPOC-R in certain situations. You've got these regimens where none of them has shown superior survival to another. So as you meet a patient with DLBCL, it, 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 are, are there ways where you can se- you select for some patients Polar R-CHIP or another R-CHOP? Um, is there any way? Is it a flip of a coin? Is it like, you know, I mean, at some point you have to make a decision which one to do. Yeah, that's, and that's an excellent question. And, you know, we typically have this discussion about potential benefit of being in polar hardship. I tend to adhere to the study design in what I would consider uh, this for my patients. So IPI 2 and, a, and above. Uh, there was, in the subset analysis, there was a more pronounced benefit for patients with ABC subtype or in FDI analysis with high grade. You have to remember the hypothesis generating uh, subset analysis. So, um, you know, I would I would still apply it to general population as an eligibility criteria for the study, and this is how I use it in the practice. I do offer it to my patients, just basically based on this PFS gain. Uh, we do have a lot of studies, though, uh, at Mayo and other institutions which are using ARTRIP as a backbone, and I usually inform my patients completely fine, again, to be in those studies because there's really no... Yeah. gain overall survival uh, with polar hardship. And I actually had some patients after discussion of toxicity and gaining PFS, but not overall survival, just preferring hardship for different reasons too. So it does happen. It does happen in the clinic uh, as well. What's really interesting though, uh, you know, the study Polarx was primarily conducted in France and uh, our French colleagues led this study. And in Europe, as you know, the EMA is kind of equivalent of FDA there, which approves the, the drugs. And 
Um, the EMA actually granted approval faster than FDA, which is a little bit of a reversal, wow. usual process. Usually EMA takes longer. Uh, but uh, in Europe, the approval are, are used by the country, really varies by the payer and, and the local uh, country agencies if they, they are reimbursing it and endorsing it. And what's interesting in, in France, where the majority of the patients were, were treated on this study, uh, actually they they elected against it, so they don't really use it. <laughs> um, you know, Germany and some other countries do, but in France, for example, uh, they still still consider ARCHOP to be their standard, just be based on this uh, lack of overall survival difference, which shows you that you know it brings design of the future studies makes it a little bit more complicated too. Because let's say if you, if you came to me today and say, Greg, I'm going to design a new study in large B-cell lymphoma and what I use as a control. Uh, now you have a little bit of a conundrum because you have some countries. Um, you have to allow both. You have to allow both, exactly. Or And then you have to kind of stratify for it uh, because in US, some some patients will be still, will be probably preferred polar hardship, right? Um, having said so, again, I, I, I cannot highlight it enough that, you know, I still believe ARCHIP is still a standard. So even in US, if you had a study which can really which can really provide you a new benefit of the new drug added to ARCHIP, um, and even if it randomizes to to, to ARCHIP control, it's it's a still very reasonable study to do uh, because you're really not 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 losing this overall survival uh, by not using polar ARCHIP. Uh, Greg, my last couple of questions. One is that you you mentioned something about a workshop with the FDA and AACR looking at um, endpoints. Um, any like cliff notes from this, like in terms of certain pertaining to uh, lymphoma uh, in terms of endpoints? Or yeah, that, this was extremely informative uh, workshop, and and I think that some of the presentations might be available online from those as well. So. Uh, you know, if listeners are interested, I would encourage you to watch it. Uh, what essentially what we was focusing on is how do we interpret overall survival in a setting of studies like this, like PolarX and other studies, which are sometimes looking at the primary endpoint as progression for survival. What happens is, you know, not necessarily in PolarX, but in some of those studies, you may have a benefit in PFS, and overall survival takes a long time to mature, and you may see actually early unfavorable hazard ratios for overall survival. So there are some potential early signals of the harm, or maybe there's no difference in overall survival at all. Um, and progression-free survival gain is marginal, like in, 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 in Polarix trial. And then how do we assure that there will be additional follow-up to make sure that there's no detriment in overall survival? How long follow-up do you need? Uh, you know, what subset analysis do you have? And this was extremely extensive discussion. It's going to be very difficult to summarize it here. Uh, if I was to summarize it in one sentence for this particular podcast, I would say the data is the king. So the more understanding you have about the events, and particularly if, if there are deaths on the study, what they are related to, what was the causality, what happened to those patients, what happened with subsequent treatment, that's really important to inform those decisions because you may now have those, those signals, very early signals, which based on the very few patients, and you have to make those decisions about the viability of the studies and, and potential uh, approval. So, so uh, you know, there's really no replacement for, for missing data. I am all for simplifying uh, the study design and trying to acquire less data because I think we are collecting a lot already. But on the other hand, if you really focus on, on such important events as deaths um, and potential toxic, you know, high-grade events, uh, you really have to make sure that you're capturing this very well in study. And, and 
And the last, last question is, you know, you talked about the importance of knowing treatment and progression when you assess overall survival. But, but there's an assumption here, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's an assumption here that at the time of progression, patients will undergo therapy and that therapy is balanced. While we know that, you know, it's hard to know how people progress. You, I mean, you have certain prognostic predictors, all that stuff. But there are folks who progress in a, in, a, in, in a very easy way where you know you have all of the options at your disposal and, and those who progress in a rapid manner where you just don't know what to treat. So that, that's where I struggle with overall survival because the assumption that at the time of progression, these two arms have access to these therapies in a balanced manner really takes away from what indeed happens in clinical practice. I know you can stratify for it. You can do a lot of sensitivity analyses and things like that. But I I, I, I think that, that the emphasis that, you know, post-procol therapy is going to be that balanced takes away from what really happens. No, you're absolutely right. There are two variables in it. And, you know, there's also this aspect is either studies really capturing the real world like patients, right? And how close they are to the real world because we know they have eligibility criteria and, there's a big talk about how we can capture more patients which are more representative of the real world, including some of the organ dysfunction or the decreased performance status, because it's a critical element in looking at the um, overall survival um, uh, as well in this in this aspect. So, uh, yeah, you're ab you're absolutely right that there's some uh, there's some uh, variability there. The the last aspect, you know, in the looking at overall survival, which is actually not necessarily uh, reflected in the progression free survival. We have to understand that now in the global world, the studies are conducted in different countries and the practice globally in supportive care and the drugs which are able for salvage therapy are very different. Um, and we had this discussion during the workshop too, you know, that really uh, we have to make sure that the population in the study does represent uh, uh, the current standard of care and also to some degree U.S. population because you may show the survival benefits to 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 do the experimental arm, uh, but this could be just because patients didn't have necessarily access to salvage therapies, which we do have, uh, for example, in US, right? So you cannot always take yeah. the results which we see in other countries to to, to extrapolate this to US. And, and some of those subset analysis by the region and by the country are very important in understanding those study results because uh, because the patterns and access to drugs do vary globally a lot. Um, and this goes also to you know, global policy as well. We, we would love to have patients around the globe uh, to have access to the same therapy, but unfortunately, it's not always reality. Well, as you said, uh, we usually say cash is king. With you, it's going to be data is king. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Greg Nowakowski, thank you so much for coming on the Heman Pulse. Thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure.